Hi, and welcome back to Too Good to Be True. This is Cassandra. And I'm Karami. And this week, we're kind of jumping into something that one of our most esteemed listeners, Kay, (laughs) or maybe only, you know, (laughs) had mentioned, um, Mr. Bernie Madoff. So this is going to be... It's going to be a long one. It's going to be a trip. I'm going to try to uh, just kind of lay it all out here and have it make sense. But please excuse my undiagnosed ADHD OCD brain. Because if it sounds like it's all over the place, it's probably just that. (laughs) But also, I mean, we have our socials. So if anybody does have questions about anything or they don't understand something, you know, that's what they're for. Come to our socials. Come to our episode discussion. Ask us questions and talk about it. Yeah, if you have any questions, we can discuss it after. Because this is a... It's a lot. That's all I'm going to say. All right. And with that... Let's talk about Bernie Madoff. I'm kind of going to start this out a little bit different than we normally do. Um, I'm going to, you know, discuss a little bit about him and uh, what he does before I kind of go into his back, whatever. Because I feel like a lot of people may be familiar with this and they kind of know what happened. But he was like, I guess you would call him like a stock broker I guess or something or whatever and he you know swindled a lot of money (laughs) let's just say that which obviously we know I mean that's because that's what we talk about yeah why would we (laughs) talk about somebody swindling money so he has been called the financial serial killer a financial sociopath And having the same qualities as a serial killer, the likes of Ted Bundy. Oh, is that that article I sent you? Well, let me just tell you, not just that article that Karami sent me, but a lot of places have discussed this. Interesting. I have found this many places, and also I believe it was discussed in the end of the four-piece documentary thing on Netflix, which I watched all four episodes, and it's super long. Good lord. (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, he has been seen as having no empathy, narcissistic, no remorse for what he's done, and they look at it as he murdered people's wallets, bank accounts, as well as people's sense of financial security, rather than actually physically murdering people. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) That's so. That's so we'll a big leave hit. with that, yeah. <laughs> and with that, Bernie Madoff or Bernard Lawrence Madoff was born April 29th, nineteen thirty eight, in Queens, New York, to parents Sylvia Mudner and Ralph Madoff. His father was a plumber but also a stockbroker at some point, so we see where that comes from. It's a weird combo. It is a weird combo. His grandparents were immigrants from Poland. He is Jewish. He grew up Jewish in that community. His family is Jewish, so this is important because he used his group status to obtain investments later on 
from Jewish individuals and organizations. So that's, like, important to keep in the back of your mind. Okay. And he was the second of three children, sister Sonia Weiner and brother Peter Madoff. And he graduated from Far Rockaway High School in 1956, where he met his future wife, Ruth Alpern, who graduated after him in 1958. They were married November 28th of 1959, so not very long out of high school. It's pretty common for back Which then. I guess, you know, yeah, that was very common back then. Bernie attended the University of Alabama for one year, then transferred to and graduated from Hofstra University in 1960 with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science. Ruth also attended college at Queens College and got her bachelor's, then was employed at the stock market in Manhattan. Which, honestly, kind of from what I heard, was unusual at that time for women to it, go to college, but she did. At that point in time, yeah. most of them only went to college to get their MRS. Yeah. But I guess <laughs> she it. was just, like, a very motivated, like... Sounds like it. ...wanted to do her own thing lady, you know? Yeah, I that's don't pretty know, cool. But for her. I thought it was pretty cool. She wasn't involved in his stuff later on. No. <laughs> <laughs> So, he briefly attended Brooklyn Law School after that, but left after his first year to found his investment company, Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, LLC, and work for himself, because he would rather do that than, you know, work for someone else, I guess. No, that's fair. And I also found out that his mother and father, you know how, like, it briefly mentioned about his dad also being a stockbroker? Mm-hmm. Well, I found out that they had a failed business, Gibraltar Securities, that was shut down by the SEC, which we will come to know the SEC very well throughout this whole story. But they are the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, which is an independent agency of the U.S. federal government that was created after the crash of Wall Street in 1929 okay. to, you know, basically enforce the law against people manipulating the market to their, you know, liking, liking. <laughs> basically, you know what I mean? So they got in trouble with the SEC with their little business that they had, which they were running out of their home, P.S., by the way. What was it, though? Like, what was a business? It was basically, like, what Bernie ends up doing later on, from what I understand. It was just, like, money management type gotcha. deal or whatever. And they failed to report its financial condition. And so, like, they got in trouble with the SEC because you have to... As one does. You have to report and check in with this SEC for basically anything and everything you're doing and like you should be checking in to with them probably at least annually if not maybe more often i don't know yeah, well but... they needed a lot of these laws after the stock stock market crash and well i mean they needed it prior to that too because yeah there was a lot of crazy shit that went on with banking back in the early days which honestly that might be an interesting episode Thing to, to do talk about point, just yeah as a historical context because back in that time People didn't trust banks because there was no consistency amongst things. Each state would have its own currency. Currency, And then, like, banks would just kind of shut down out of nowhere and disappear. And that's it. The money is gone. And then when the stock market crashed, it's kind of along the same vein. And so they needed to create these different 
laws and regulations and divisions to keep that kind to of keep craziness that kind of from, stuff happening, from again. happening. Yeah. And they had their home listed as the place of business, like I said, and there was a lien against it for $13,000. I think they did end up losing their home because I'm pretty sure I remember that from the documentary. I mean, don't you quote me on will that. if you have a lien against it and you can't pay to... And you can't pay it. You know, that, I mean, that's what a lien is. is. A lien is... I'm pretty sure they didn't pay it and it, they took their yeah, house. Yeah, a lien is that, hey, um, you have money from us and if you don't pay it to us then we're going to take the thing that you put up as collateral aka your lien right you know that's what mortgages are any mortgage is a lien and then right you don't pay your mortgage you can say bye-bye to your house yeah i didn't see anything about that in my research but i'm pretty sure they talked about it in the documentary because they say that they think the main reason why he went into this business is because of that whole situation. And he wanted to prove himself to right. his father and whatever. And I don't know. That's just hearsay. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's just hearsay. But Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities LLC started with $5,000, which is equivalent to $46,000 in 2021. Okay. So, I mean... Yeah, I mean, different times, inflation. Not chump change, but like, you know, whatever. And he had earned that money as a lifeguard and an irrigation sprinkler installer, which he did on the side for like extra money. Okay. And then it said also as a loan and a loan of $50,000 from his father-in-law, Saul Alpern, who also referred a circle of his friends and family to him as like his clients or whatever when he started up his business and basically from the time he started until it was shut down it was all by word of mouth which is kind of insane when you think about it because of the times and the changing times and how long it was open for do you know what I mean like you'd think that they would have gotten other things involved in it like once computers came about they would have marketed that way or well you know. i mean they wouldn't have been able to market in computers because the internet itself wasn't in existence just because computers were but he I mean he could have done television or radio commercials well the internet did come about towards the end of his whole thing so you'd think they would have utilized something like because this maybe. was going on through the 2000s so yeah. like yeah maybe think so. about it like you'd maybe think a google ad here and there or something you'd think that they would have done something but they didn't it was all word of mouth to attract investors basically i mean i guess if it's working for you if it ain't broke don't fix it but as we'll find out there's probably a reasoning behind that <laughs> <laughs> so yeah the f firm employed his brother peter as senior seen Senior. Senior. <laughs> Senior Managing Director and Chief Compliance Officer. Peter's daughter, Shana Madoff, as Rules and Compliance Officer, as well as an attorney. And his own sons, Mark and Andrew, worked in the trading section as well as Madoff's nephew, Charles Weiner. So, a lot of family stuff going on here. And, side note... You know how they said they gave him this loan of 50000 mm -hmm. to start this up, the, the father-in-law? Mm -hmm. In the actual documentary, 
they actually talk about it actually being his father bailing him out because his first investments didn't go very well. So if that's kind of like any, you know, indication indication of what's going to happen in the future. I mean, you'd think he would have just quit then, but he didn't. You know what I mean? Because literally that's what they they said. Like, but you know, that's like a running theme with these people, the fraudsters and the scammers. It's like they don't know when to stop, reevaluate, realize they're doing something wrong, and try right. to do something else. They try just to do keep something different down or better and making or, it worse. <laughs> yeah, instead, they kind of go full in and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So, his his first investors, like we said, were friends and family of Saul Alper. And so, I think that that's why he felt like. He needed to bail him out at that point because he didn't want, he didn't want to look bad to these people. Do you know what I that mean? Makes sense. So he loaned him the forty some thousand, almost fifty thousand dollars to, you know, pay these people back or whatever, which is insane. And he probably never saw that money. P.S. By the way, probably but, not. No. You know, <laughs> I'm just saying. So, what they did was called a penny stock broker-dealer, which the term penny stock is to refer to a security, which is a financial instrument which represents a given financial value issued by small public companies that trades at less than $5 per share. So, they were like the very bare minimum of what you could sell and trade. And he kind of tried to make it a thing... For himself, where he's trading, you know, these smaller things that nobody really wanted to deal in or handle so that he could make a name for himself outside of like the big markets like the New York Stock Exchange, whatever, whatever. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because he thought I could do this, you know, with these smaller ones and make them into something bigger. Which is kind of, I mean, okay, inspirational in a way, but kind of like, (laughs) good luck, you know (laughs) what I mean? So, in financial services, a broker-dealer is a natural person, company, or other organization that engages in the business of trading securities for its own account or on behalf of other people. So, what they did was, like, they had customers, and then you have that broker-dealer relationship, so they're basically making the deals for them. But from what I gather, from what I saw, he never, you're supposed to charge fees. He never charged fees to anybody. Why? I have no idea. I think maybe he thought if he did that, that gave him some sort of leverage. Yeah, like, oh, come to me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, come, come to me, to me instead I'm of the guy down the street. Come to me, I'm not charging you any fees. Yeah. Yeah, maybe he was trying to undercut his, his opponents yeah, or something. Yeah, I don't know. But that's what I understand from what I saw in the documentary and read. He never charged anyone any fees for handling their money. So, initially the firm made markets, quoted bids, and asking prices via the National Quotation Bureau's pink sheets which is a American financial market providing price and liquidity, liquidity information for almost 10,000 over-the-counter securities, which over-the-counter is like, it's like, like I said, it's like the small deals. It's not like the big stuff. He was doing the, all the small deals. He wasn't doing the bigger, crazy New York Stock Exchange stuff. Mm-hmm. 
So in order to compete with firms that were members of the New York Stock Exchange trading on the stock's floor, you know, if you've ever seen that, which I don't know. I mean, they, they portray it in movies. That. They and have TV it in movies, and stuff, you know. And it's wild, and I have no idea if that's what it's really like, but I imagine. His firm began using innovative computer information technology to disperse its quotes. So they were like one of the first people to use computerized quotes okay. instead of paper sheets, which we had discussed before, the pink sheets or whatever the hell they're called. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know what? A lot of this stuff is very jargony, and I was just like, I have no clue what these people are talking about. Yeah, we're not stock people. We don't do Wall Street stuff. We're Yeah, I don't know much about stocks and things like that. More of, you know, that's a little out of the realm of banking. Yeah, we're more frontline and back office bankers. We don't do stocks and bonds. Right. <laughs> and him and his brother are the ones that came up with this technology together, which is kind of cool. I mean, innovative for them to do that. Mm-hmm. That was a, maybe the one and only good thing that they did. So is that technology still used in it any is. capacity? So af- here, that's what I'm going into now. After a trial run, the technology that the firm developed became the National Association of Security Dealers Automated Quotations Stock Market, which is NASDAQ. Which oh. we all know. Oh. You know, you'd think if he was smart, he would have just sold that. He should have patented that yeah, shit. I mean, he should have sold, sold it for millions and then called it a day. And he would have made he out rich nicely. Yeah. yeah, he would have made out nicely, honestly. But he didn't. Which is crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because that, that, like, <laughs> that was hanging right in front of him. You know what I mean? Like, he could have done that. So crazy, honestly. But he didn't, so here we are. And at one point, Madoff Securities was the largest market maker at the NASDAQ, and in 2008 was the sixth largest market maker in S&P 500 stocks. I'm not going to go crazy with explaining this stuff, but... Yeah, I'm already (laughs) over here like... What? (laughs) Papers, computers, quotations, stealing things. My mind's already like... (laughs) Going in 50 different directions. As I'm reading it, I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) That's not, that's not, I mean, honestly, it's not a lie. But to give a little brief description of S&P 500 stocks, that is the stock market index tracking the stock performance of the most, the 500 largest companies listed on the stock exchange in the U.S. So, like, it lists the most prominent ones. The firm also had an investment management and advisory division, which is the one they did not publicize, which is the focus of the fraud and investigation. Because, you know, let me try to keep that a little under the wraps. I mean, if you're going to do something not quite legal, you probably shouldn't be like, hello, this is the thing I'm doing. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So... The function of the firm was they were like third market trading providers, bypassing the exchange specialist firms by directly executing the orders over the counter from the retail brokers. So it was like kind of bypassing the middleman, I guess, or whatever. But they're kind of like a middleman, too. So I kind of don't get it. Yeah, I was going to say, how are they bypassing a middleman? I kind of don't get it. 
I kind of don't get it, but, like, I guess if have you ever seen, like, the movies where they're, like, they have the guy down on the floor talking and doing and his the boss whatever, is yelling shit co- on the phone. And he's talking to the boss on the phone. So they're cutting the out the floor So they're guy? cutting out all of that. The oh, floor, okay. The floor person and all that. You know what I mean? They're dealing directly with the consumer or whatever. Gotcha. Madoff was the first prominent practitioner, they say, of payment for order flow in which a dealer pays a broker for the right to execute a customer's order. This has been called, and I quote, a legal kickback, if you've ever heard of this, which he tried to make excuses for and say that, like, okay, it's okay, it's not a bad thing, it's not, it's not against the law, it's just what you have to do. You know, (laughs) basically, because people question that the ethics of that. And he said it's he viewed it as like payments as in any normal practice. Like, for example, me and you both worked retail. An example that he uses is if your girlfriend goes to buy stockings. okay. People don't buy stockings anymore, but I buy stockings. but (laughs) But this was like back then. okay? so if you're. Girlfriend goes to buy stockings at a supermarket. The racks that display those stockings are usually paid for by the company that manufactured the stockings, not that business. So he sees it as like something like that. You know what I mean? Whereas like, I don't know, that's his excuse anyway. (laughs) That was his excuse. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I'm I'm doing my best to follow along. (laughs) That was his excuse, y'all. I, I think I'm a little brain dead, but I'm trying. It's okay. This is a lot to take in. Trust me. <laughs> By the end of this, I'm going to be, like, cross-eyed and just like, <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on. Madoff was active in the National Association of Securities Dealers, or NASDA, a self-regulatory securities industry organization. He served as the chairman of its board of directors and was a member of its board of governors. And I know he did that for, like, three years, I guess, or something like that. And it's a very, you know, well-established thing that is in that industry. And you have to be pretty important to get on it, I guess. He also sat on the board of directors for the Securities Industry Association, who later merged with the Bond Market Association to form the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association, or SIFMA. It's just a a lot of bullshit (laughs) that I don't understand. Right, yeah. And he had other family members that were also involved with SIFMA, including his brother Peter and the niece Shana, who we stated before worked for him. Mm -hmm. And she was the attorney, right? Yes. Okay. In the 1990s, the brokerage firm part of the business was handling 10 to 15% of all trading orders for the New York Stock Exchange and by all accounts was hugely successful, making his family lots of money, obviously. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And in the year 2000, Madoff Securities was even one of the top traders of securities and held approximately $300 in assets, which they said would be $472 million in 2021. Okay, so he's doing okay. So here's the part that people kind of don't understand. His legitimate business was doing well. Okay. Why did he feel the need to... Greed. 
Exactly. <laughs> and that's what we'll get into. Exactly. That, that is the downfall of all of, of these all people. humans? Of, of, of all of these scammers and fraudsters. Oh, yeah, for the sure. Greed, you know, it's, they, they. And he admitted are, that himself. Yeah, and they're doing okay, but they're too greedy to just do okay. They need to do better. And so they fall into the shady illegal stuff. And that's their Correct. downfall. Correct. Bernie was making lots of money at this point off his legitimate business and had luxury apartments in Manhattan, an $11 million estate in Palm Beach, a $4 million home at the tip of Long Island, a property in the south of France. What the fuck? (laughs) I know, that's what I'm saying. As well as having other luxuries like jets, yachts. And that wasn't enough. Obviously. Bro. He had celebrity investors... I don't know if anyone is familiar with um, all of these people or that he had celebrity investors, but he did. And like I said, all of this was from word of mouth. I'm going to list some of them. I don't talk about them a lot because they're, they're celebrities and who gives a shit? Well, I mean, we do, but we don't. You know, he the other people he targeted were hit a lot worse than these celebrities. Yeah, because the celebrities have more to back it up right. if they lose you know it's like a regular person if they lose a million dollars that's gets a harder hit than exactly. a celebrity who's got 20 million and loses a million. so i'll list some of them jaja gabor steven spielberg kevin bacon and his wife kira sedgwick oh. dreamworks animation chief executive jeffrey katzenberg john malkovich ellie weissel who was a holocaust survivor and a nobel peace prize I winning was eli weissel is it Eli? Did I say Eli? Is that how you say it? I'm sorry if I said that wrong. I don't know. Honestly, Eli I know who he is. Weissel, but I know, yeah, I think it's Holocaust Eli. survivor and Nobel Peace Prize winning writer, teacher, and activist. He's the guy that said... Um, I just know he's an older he, man. They showed him on the he's documentary. He's the guy that said that you have to pick a side when it comes to oppression because if you don't pick a side and you remain neutral, you're on the side of the oppressor. I like him. I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he seemed like a cool dude. And Larry King. That's the last one. What happened was he was also targeting mostly widows and retirees who were investing their entire life savings. Awesome. Gotta love conning old people out of their stuff. And how he met these people was through his Palm Beach place that he, (laughs) you know lived in old people stop going to florida because i feel like every time they go to florida they get scammed out of something it's very sad it's truly sad these people were just like they just listened to him like he would talk it up he'd be like we're this is what we're gonna do and he was seeing 15 percent return instead of like the eight eight to ten percent which was i guess the normal at the time and they trusted him because he seemed family-oriented. It was a family business. All these people that he targeted were also Jewish, like I said, would come back into play. And they didn't trust others, but they would trust people who were Jewish. That's what I was thinking when you said initially. That because it's a Jewish. very tight community. Yeah, and they do tend to go with their own community. And, right. And, and they will spread quickly through word of mouth. I mean, they talked to some of these families, not the actual victims, but the families of these victims, because a lot of these people are already deceased because they were older, as mm-hmm. we know. But they had said that's why their family 
went with him and trusted him because he was Jewish. And it is such a tight-knit community. Mm -hmm. And they're so quick to trust people that are Jewish, but not anyone else. The business occupied three floors of the lipstick building in Manhattan, which it literally looks... That's why it's called lipstick building. It literally looks like a lipstick. Huh. Like the way that it's built. Is it still there? I'm not sure. I never investigated that. I'm going to look that up. The legitimate brokerage trading business was on the 19th floor. It was all fancy, silver, gray, black, very nice looking, you know... And that was mostly run by his family members, his sons, his brother, the niece, all those people. Then there was the 18th floor, which was the conference room space. But then there was the 17th floor. <laughs> That's, this is where all the interesting shit goes down. Oh, okay. The 17th floor, with a staff of about 24, was the investment management division which literally nobody that worked on the other floor knew what these people were even doing. Interesting. They knew it existed. They knew it was there. The two never met, if you get what I'm saying. I mean, that's another running theme is all the secrecy. All the secrecy. I mean, so he never told his sons. He never told his brother. He never told any of them what was going on. And they never asked, and I don't know why. You know what I mean? Maybe they had their suspicions and they figured, don't ask, don't tell. Don't ask, don't tell. Who knows? I really am not sure. But the Ponzi scheme was started on the 17th floor. The person who was in charge of the 17th floor was Frank DePascali. This gentleman worked in a gas station prior to being hired by Bernie Madoff and had no formal education. So, how do you get hired then? Probably because Bernie didn't want somebody who actually knew what they were doing. He just wanted somebody who would be shady and get the job done. I don't know. But also, I heard that a lot of these people that he hired that worked on the 17th floor were, right out of high school, young people at the time. Hmm. They were probably just young, up-and-coming, looking for Yeah, and they don't know enough to question things, and they're easier to manipulate. Yes, they were just looking for an opportunity. And then they ended up, all these people ended up working him for like 30, 40 years. Hmm. And I don't know if that's because they felt trapped or because they genuinely enjoyed it. I don't know. Yeah, or if they were receiving Hard to you say. Know, their own perks or perks or kickbacks. From it. I think that everyone that worked for him, it seemed like genuinely liked him, but he did have like a nasty side to him. But okay. he was also like, you know how all those other people are, where they're like, oh, they're so likable and just their personality is, you know, of just course. There's so always that charisma that comes into Charismatic play. and, yeah. Well, all the shady business happened on this floor, and the people on the other floor knew nothing about it, like I said. Essentially, what they were doing is, you know, the basic Ponzi schemes, stealing from Peter to pay Paul that sort of thing, by getting money from big investors, which they called feeder funds, Mm -hmm. and using those funds to pay other people's returns, returns, because I'm going to say they were fake, because what eventually... This part reminds me of, what's-his-face, Billy McFarland from Fire Festival. 
getting the money from True indeed. the other investors to pay off other things and then kind of having to make it back up and, and just make keep it going up. in a so loop. It just keeps going because you're like, I need that money to pay this person. Therefore, you're getting more money from this person in order to pay this person. Yaddity, yaddity. I don't think I could do it. I couldn't be a scammer even if I wanted to. I don't think I have. It seems like a lot. I don't have the memory capacity to do to know who I took what from to give to the other person. I would have endless notes of like, it's okay, I stole $5 from Cassandra and I gave it to insane. Manny. <laughs> well, that's why like he had all these people working in that department on that floor because they were making obviously fake documents. They were like, in fact, making fake statements, fake, you know, trades. Cause they, he was in fact was not trading anyone's money. Yeah, and that's pretty common. That was that, in, that's reminding me of Anna Delvey with her fake financial statements. I know, it's kind of insane. He was not, in fact, literally trading any of this money that was being dealt with on the 17th floor that people were giving him to manage for them. He was actually just depositing it into one bank account at J.P. Morgan Chase. Just this one account. And he funneled all the funds into there. Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. <laughs> kind of insane, <laughs> I know. There were a handful of other people that are involved in, or main players on the 17th floor. One of them is Annette Bongiorno, who worked for him for 30 years. Like I said, she dealt with mostly the big clients. She also had no formal education. She started working for him as a teenager, just like that other guy right out of high school. I mean, I'm not going to knock people joining financial institutions or things like that with no formal training, because honestly, a lot of entry-level financial jobs you don't need. You don't need training A whole lot of formal education for, but at the same time, it seems like he's going out of his way to get those people so he can manipulate them into doing what he wants. I think it kind of depends the motivation behind it. They had two gentlemen that worked there, Jerome O'Hara and George Perez, who were computer programmers. And, in fact, would have been the people that created the programs that they were using to falsify all of these things. Oh, wasn't that handy? I know, right? (laughs) Jody Kruby, who settled the J.P. Morgan account for him, so, like, she would let him know what was going in, what was coming out, what was left in there... She's kind of like the accountant. If he could make returns or not to people if they asked for it, you know, if it was feasible, if he needed to go get more money to fill the account, she kind of just basically kept track of the account for him. Gotcha. On this floor, they created false trading reports based on the returns that Madoff ordered for each customer. So it was based off of, like, what those people were asking, but they weren't actually doing what they were supposed to do, what they said they were doing. And when Madoff determined the customer's return, one of the back office workers would essentially create a false trade report with a previous date for when something was, I guess, high or whatever and would produce the most for your value or whatever, the most bang for your buck. Bang for your buck, (laughs) yeah. Then enter a false closing trade in the amount required to produce the required profit. You know, which is insane. So they used a computer program specially designed to backdate trades and manipulate account statements. All very shady things, like I said. Mm-hmm. All these statements 
were physically sent to clients, which is crazy because at this time, there was computers, there was the internet, they were doing all their work computerized. So it's kind of, when you think about it now, it's like kind of weird that they weren't sending statements to people electronically because they could have, they very well could have. They chose not to because they were doing shady shit and faking shit and they needed to do it that way. (laughs) Which in hindsight, you'd think people would have noticed, hey, this is weird. Because if they're like leaders in technology and they started this whole, you know, trading by using the computer, you'd think they'd want to do. You'd the think whole thing that they would want to do more computerized things, but they didn't. Yeah. Which you'd think would have been tipping people off as something shady to begin with, but yet nobody thought twice about it. Right, but there was that trust, you know, that he just exactly had everybody believing everything he said. Right. So, like I said, there was no online access to accounts, and whenever people got too pushy about things, he would just brush it off, deflect, whatever, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, he would schmooze these people, you know, like he, as he did, on a daily basis, DePascali and his team on the 17th floor of the Lipstick Building, where the scam was based, were creating these you know, bogus, you know, buckets, or they say, they call them baskets Mm -hmm. of stocks as the basis for false trading records, which Madoff claimed were generated from his supposed, and they talk about this in the documentary, split split strike conversion is what he called his strategy. And I don't know how to explain that, so I'm not even going to try. If you would like to do your research you can look into that because I'm I was like I don't even know how to explain this but he bought blue chip stocks which I will say are the stocks with a reputation to be of good quality okay reliable you know uh had the ability to operate in good and bad times so he would buy those ones and took option contracts on them. So that's the basic gist of what he would do with those. Like, he was trying... It's an option contract? I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Google it. <laughs> Google it, my friends. <laughs> I, I don't know. To say I just he was know. doing some shady shit. He was doing shady shit, but, like, he was buying the stocks that, he, that would... Or saying he bought stocks, because he actually wasn't doing it. He wasn't doing it, but he was pretending to buy basically guaranteed stocks. Guaranteed, yeah, guaranteed money. Okay, that makes sense. Let's let's say it that way. That's probably the best way to say it. It was was intended to be guaranteed money. Gotcha, okay. He had four big investors that he dealt with from the get-go. Like, it says... Their relationship dates back to, like, the 60s, 70s. He, they were clients of his for a very long time. And he made them. I'm on, you can't see me because I'm not being videoed, but in quotation marks, made them hundreds of millions of dollars. Because <laughs> he didn't actually. Yeah, I'm sure he didn't. But they, they thought they were being made hundreds of millions That's of dollars. That's insane to, like, just take somebody else's word for... 
what money you have in the bank. Like, I right. cannot even imagine. Like, no, I need to see my own accounts for myself to know what I have got. Like, if Chase was like, hey, you have $5 million, I'd be like, right. bullshit. No, I don't. Yeah, exactly. And those four big investors were Jeffrey Pickauer, Carl Shapiro, Norman Levy, and Stanley Chase. Bernie would often use these guys as, like, his backup, or like they were calling them before, feeder funds, in order to do returns to smaller yeah. investors. Yeah. And in 1992, there was this firm that was investigated that essentially started, it was actually his father-in-law's law firm, but it was taken over by these two guys, Avellino and Bynes. And they were worked for Saul Alpern, but then when he retired, they took over his accounting law firm. And they were referring all of their customers to Bernie, like all of their customers, but like on the sly, okay? They weren't telling these people where their money was going. They weren't telling them who the investor even was. They weren't even saying. They were like, basically just like, this is guaranteed money. You're good to go. And not telling them anything else and these people were just so trusting they were like oh okay yeah, yeah i was sure. just gonna say they have if, that established trust so they're just my, like all right <laughs> if my accountant says it's good then sure yeah so and they and got you in, would expect your accountant to be yeah. telling you the truth <laughs> so, yeah so they got in trouble in 1992 and were investigated and this was after you know saul was gone but this had started prior to before Saul had retired, the father-in-law. Because this started, like, basically from the get-go. He was referring his own clients to him from the beginning. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which is crazy that this went on for so long, but who knows. Anyway, these individuals were just giving their money to them like and they were like oh this guy that's doing amazing things in wall street but not saying who he was because he was anonymous and they're saying that between 1962 and 1992 they they invested those two guys 450 million dollars of those clients money with madoff oh that's a lot of money yeah and they were just putting it in a pool that they would pull from when needed to provide someone with their returns on their investment. And then they weren't actually seeing any returns on but their investment. Yeah, exactly. That's nuts. And so good old Bernie's like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to give all this money back because they're being investigated. He's like thinking the jig is up. So he goes to those people, the top four investor guys, and is like, I need $440 million. You know, whatever. And they put it back into the company. Oh they invested God. it back into the company. All right. I don't think he said it in that way, like, hey, I need this to bail me out. But, like... Oh, yeah, I'm sure he, he did. He was like, invest more money. Right. You know? He probably was like, oh, it's really taking off. You it's should really taking off. And... You should put more money. And he got them to invest more money because he was assuming that he was going to have to repay all this money to these people from... To the lower level people. From this accounting firm. But what happened was, because we saw it on the documentary, those people ended up finding out who was doing it and what the deals were and whatever. And once they found out, 
they wanted to continue to invest because they saw it as a good opportunity. So they never even asked for their money back. Wow. Which is insane. That's nuts. It, the whole thing is insane. So they never even asked for their money back, even though the two guys, the Avellino and Bynes, were literally required to return the money to these people. Because that's what was part of their deal, you know, when they got in trouble. But when they went to get the money from him, the investors didn't want to. They were like, oh, it's making good money. I don't want it back. Right. Or so, so they, they wanted to keep investing it because they thought it was making good money. Well, from that point on, what happens is there is this gentleman, Harry Markopoulos, who ends up being like the big, what we'll call whistleblower, in quotation marks, because mm-hmm. that's what they call the, you know, people that... People that, that out everything. Out everything on these people. He worked for another company as a portfolio manager, Rampart Investment Company is who he worked for. And he ended up like working his way up the chain and ended up being chief investment officer for them. But as early as 1999 to 2000, he was questioning like how Bernie was making all this money. Do you know what I mean? Because he was like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, because he actually knows what he's doing, unlike these other people. And it was like, this doesn't make sense. Yeah, he was like, it doesn't make sense. Make it make sense. Make it make sense. And he was asked by his bosses, who were looking for new, like, up-and-coming clients, and they had went and talked to his... Well, his one boss, Frank Casey, went and talked to this guy who is a French aristocrat and money manager named Rene Villachot. I don't remember how to say it, but it's in the documentary. <laughs> that guy. Him. Rene. We'll just say Rene. <laughs> <laughs> and he had all his money and his clients' money invested in Madoff Securities. So when this guy went to go and talk to him and try to get him to invest with their company rampart or whatever he was being very shady and not wanting to say who he was dealing with but when the guy i guess like he's like i wouldn't normally do this or whatever but they interviewed him on the thing and he's like this wasn't normal practice and i wouldn't normally do this but he's like the guy left the room and he looked in his folder at his documents and Uh saw the name on the top of the you know, statement. So he snooped. Sheets. Yeah, he snooped. <laughs> <laughs> he snooped. So he was like, you know, who is this guy? They started doing more, you know, investigating into him because he wasn't like, he wasn't in the New York Stock Exchange. He wasn't like this, you know, big whatever. So they found out by talking to this guy that. He had, like I said, all his money and all his clients' money invested in Bernie, which is like, that's a lot. And so they asked this Harry Markopoulos guy to replicate the returns of Bernie Madoff's firm because they were like, hey, can you do this so that we can compete Mm -hmm. with this other company since they're stealing, like, you know, all the clients or whatever. And he found it legally and mathematically impossible 
I was going to be like, the math ain't mathin'. The math ain't mathin'. (laughs) (laughs) And in May 2000, he sent his first complaint to the SEC in Boston. And he did it again in 2001. I mean, you gotta do what you gotta do. He compiled more information. He took trips over to Europe found out that there was 14 different funds that different firms invested with Bernie that believed they were the only ones who were invested with him. Oh, wow. And this is, like, overseas. <laughs> so he really wanted to get him. Yeah. And he's, like, traveling and everything, trying to build evidence and stuff. Yeah, he really did. Because well, okay. he didn't feel that it was fair, obviously. But none of these places were doing their due diligence, as we call it. I mean, we even call it that in... Another theme. Banking industry. And he also realized that there was a large number of funds operated offshore. And it is said that he... I don't know if this is proven or just speculation, so I'm just going to put that out there. He is said to have invested money for the Russian mafia and Latin American drug cartels. Now, Mm. I don't know that any of that has ever been proven. There's just speculation about it. Okay. And a lot of people are even saying that that's the reason he wanted to go to jail. Like, he he would have rather went to jail than... Getting more protection in jail. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because this went a lot higher than what people even realize or whatever. And so even after being, you know, shut down by the SEC multiple times, this Harry Markopoulos was a... He was a go-getter. He was not about to give up. And sent a 21-page memo in November of 2005 entitled, The World's Largest Hedge Fund is a Fraud. (laughs) With a list of 30 red flags to the SEC regulators. With the major one being that the return that he was getting was unrealistic. Because he graphed it. And the graph was nearly a 45-degree angle, which is like his letter was, extremely unrealistic. His letter was literally, dear SEC, the math ain't mathin'. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Poor guy. And to make matters worse, Bernie was not registered with the SEC as a hedge fund or investment company. He kept that whole division under wraps. Hush-hush, you I mean, know? Of course, why would you register? Because then there's a trail. Exactly. And major Wall Street firms wouldn't even trade with him. I mean, do you blame them? At this time. (laughs) So, like, because even they saw what the SEC was, like, so dumb to, like, even realize. Do you know what I mean? Or maybe, I mean, who knows? I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I don't want to speculate. But maybe a lot of this stuff got swept under the rug. Yeah. I don't know. They... were like they could not believe his numbers were real and many of the high-ranking executives even suspected his operations and his claims to be not legit so just like that harry markopoulos guy these people that worked at these other large wall street firms were like no way we're not doing business with him because they didn't believe what he was doing was real to begin with yeah which in fact it it is not (laughs) they were right (laughs) i forgot to mention when I was talking about the bank 
that he was dealing with. He actually had a bank in London also that he was dealing with. Okay. And what he would do, and I don't know how I forgot to mention this, but what he would do is he would send the money that he was getting from these big investors over to the bank in London. Okay. And then use that money in his real legit business by sending it back to the J.P. Morgan Chase Bank after sending it there and then sending it back. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that those two floors were still none the wiser of right. the activities right. going on on the 17th floor. Wow. Which was also kind of messed up. <laughs> yeah, he would, like, send the money out to his London division. They would put it in a bank there. He'd send it back. Because he had, like, a small London division, and mm-hmm. he had cameras set up there, too, so he could see it from New York, so he wouldn't have to go there. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Which is weird, but... I mean, if you're doing illegal shit, I guess you I guess he had to it. have cameras to keep an eye on it, because he was doing illegal shit. And in December of 2008, everything fell apart for good old Bernie. Finally. It only took 40 years. Finally. <laughs> yeah. After the SEC, you know, completely ignored all the things that this poor Harry guy was telling them. I mean, you feel like he almost dedicated his whole life. I know. I was just thinking how frustrating that man to... must have been to just keep trying and trying and trying to do the right thing and nobody would listen to and him. And they wouldn't listen to him. But part of that, I think, has to do with the fact that Bernie actually did have it in with a couple people that worked at the SEC, like, including, like, the higher-up people, mm-hmm. he was, like, good friends with them. Yeah, so they don't want to believe he's doing They probably just didn't want to believe it. Yeah, and I, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say they were helping him cover I don't, up, because we don't know. I don't know, think they were helping but him, but I think they were just like, it. oh, it's just Bernie, and yeah. it's no big deal. Yeah, he's just good at it. <laughs> they sent people there to even investigate him. Wow. In I think it was, like, 2007, like, right before all this shit went down. And they, it was like two people because so they sh- they showed it in the documentary. It was like two people, and they just had they were just like. So they're just sitting there thinking that Harry's just a hater. They were just like, <laughs> he w- he was trying to blow them off or whatever, and then he. I guess, once again, as these people, I guess, do when they're doing shady shit, he looked in their briefcases when they weren't in the conference room or whatever that he had them sitting in. Mm -hmm. He looked in their stuff and then saw, he admitted this, I mean, they interview him on the thing, he saw what they were really there for and that they were trying to find out if this was really a thing going on Mm -hmm. underneath, under wraps or whatever, you know. And so he brought them back in and was like no bullshit let's talk about this so sat them down and talked about it and he even con- somehow convinced them everything was cool wow and they left okay <laughs> sure let's just take his word for it it's cr- it's kind of insane honestly but everything blew up finally in december of 2008 and according to an article published by A&E Television Networks in April of 2014 Bernie told his sons that he was going to hand out these bonuses. Bonuses. Okay. (laughs) That were several millions of dollars earlier than he had scheduled. In another article, I found out that it was $173 million. Oh. And he was just going to hand these bonuses out to the people that were, like, the closest to him. His 
family, his friends, the people that have worked there the longest. Wow. Whatever. These supposed bonuses. Which, in fact, we'll find out later, was him just trying to offload what was left in his account. Makes basically. sense. His sons pressured him to find out, like, hey, where is this money coming from? Because, as we all know, in 2008, there was a financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Things were not good in the stock market. Things were not good for people in general. Yeah, there the housing market and everything The housing was market crashed. Everything unemployment was... Unemployment was at a high. Unemployment was at a high. It was not a good time for anybody, especially someone that was dealing in finances. Mm-hmm. So his sons are like, Andrew and Mark are like, where the hell's this money coming from that you're giving us all these fancy bonuses or whatever when right. like why are nobody we doing has so any well money when everybody else is suffering <laughs> no one has any money <laughs> yeah so they were like what's up and he finally just caved hmm. and told them that he was running this fake investment company out of the 17th floor and in fact it was a ponzi scheme <laughs> He just told them? He just flat out told them. <laughs> oh, my God. The sons then reported him to federal authorities after first consulting with Mark's father-in-law, who is a lawyer. Okay. Because the lawyer obviously was like, hey. You don't want to be You don't want to be involved in this. In this yeah. Because if you, now that you too. know, you're going to go down too. Yeah. And they were like, fuck that. Yeah, they were like, um, no, thank you. We're not going to jail, Dad. <laughs> no, they were like, we are not. We didn't have any part of this, and we don't want any part of it. Mm-hmm. And on December 11th, 2008, the FBI arrested Bernie Madoff and charged him with securities fraud. I wonder if the SEC people were like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> we done we messed done up. We done messed up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sure they were. And probably trying to cover their asses then yeah, at this point. We didn't know. We had no idea. No, we, Harry didn't write us a 20-page document. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know either. Who, Harry who? Harry who? What are you talking about? <laughs> and the sons even quoted him as saying, it was all one big lie. <laughs> so as we know, things were not good at this time. Financial crisis and all. What perpetrated this whole thing and bernie kind of going off the deep end here we'll say and wanting to hand out all this money mm-hmm. to his family and and cherished employees was that people were insisting on returns for their money because obviously because shit was going down shit was going down to the tune of seven billion dollars holy shit that bernie simply did not have he just didn't have it and he knew that there was no way he could come up with it. That basically he was screwed at this point. Uh-huh. There was no way he was getting it from the big four. He wasn't getting it from anybody at this point. Because everybody was in a financial downturn. Yeah. Like things were not good. And the account, the account, they called it account, what was it? 703 or something. Because that's like the last three numbers of it. In the documentary they kept calling it that. Okay. From... Went from five point five billion in mid two thousand eight to at this point, when right before all this happened, which was like I guess the end of November, right before all this went down, 
was at 234 million. So it was at 5.5 billion and dropped down to 234 million. And as we know, then he was trying to unload that cash and give it to people he was close to. Right. Then I found out later that he, in fact, told Frank D. Pascali, his longtime assistant who had overseen that fraudulent advisory business, the day before he talked to the children, that he was finished and tried to get him to use the remaining money in the business account to cash out accounts of family members and friends who to had invested. Sure that they recovered. Yes, exactly. Wow. But then was unable to do so because of the sons turning him in, like, almost immediately. A good thing. So there was, like, no time to even do that. And that he had also told his brother Peter on December 9th about the fraud. So Peter sat with this information for, like, two days and just... Molded over? Molded over, I guess, <laughs> did nothing. He's like, yeah. what do I do? <laughs> I don't know. After his arrest... He posted $10 million bail and remained on house arrest in his Upper East Side penthouse. Oh, nice for him. Isn't that nice for him? Where he was monitored (laughs) (laughs) 24-7. Being accused of defrauding clients of almost $64 billion over 20 years in what was said to be the largest Ponzi scheme in history at this time. Sounds like it. Yes. Now, that's fictitious money because these were investments that people thought they were making, but they weren't actual actual investments. I'm just going to put that out there. He'd be lying. (laughs) (laughs) So that money never actually existed, but that's neither here nor there. March 12th of 2009, he pled guilty to 11 federal felonies, including securities fraud, wire fraud, Mail fraud, money laundering, making false statements, perjury, theft from an employee benefit plan, and making false filings with the SEC. Well, goddamn, <laughs> that's a lot of charges. Exactly. <laughs> he pled guilty to all charges without a plea and insisted he was solely responsible for this whole undertaking, for this whole feat, hmm. which they're saying. In actual money was like nineteen billion from more than forty thousand investors. In actual money, wow, still a lot of money. Which is still a lot of money. It's no sixty-four billion, but it's still a lot of money. Nineteen billion is still a lot of money. And forty thousand people is a lot of people. It's a lot of people. A hell of a lot of people. Judge Denny Chin revoked his bail, and he was sent to Metropolitan Correctional Center. Okay, he well, said that's that. Fair. He said that Madoff was a flight risk due to his age, wealth, and, and he had homes and stuff in other countries. The prospect of spending the rest of his life in prison. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people kind of don't want to do that, so they will take off. Yeah. Bernie's lawyer, Iris Sorkin, tried to appeal on March 20th for him to be sent back home until his sentencing in June. I guess it was like 29th. Mm-hmm. But he was denied. As he should be. (laughs) As he should be. June 22nd, he even sent a fancy letter to the judge stating some sort of like, he had some statistics done about his life expectancy. 
Who cares? The, Unless the, he's the, dying tomorrow, he could still run the away. The lawyer did this. The lawyer had some thing made up about his life expectancy only being 13 more years. So they wanted him to only be sentenced to 12 years. Because they were saying he only had 13 more years to live, basically. No. Isn't that insane? I mean, who, who, <laughs> you can't determine that, like, exactly. Like, right. he's for sure only going to live until May 2nd of 1999. Know, like, right? No, come on. So, on June 26th, Bernie was ordered to forfeit $170 million in assets. They also went after Ruth, the wife, which we haven't heard anything about Poor for Ruth. a while. She's just minding her own business and doing her thing. For $85 million, which w- left her with only $2.5 million in cash. Okay, well, that's still, like, way more than I have, so... I know, right? I don't feel that bad for her. She was also accused of withdrawing $15 million from accounts before he confessed. Ruthie? No, no, no. <laughs> which, honestly... I don't know if he... Here's the thing. I don't think she knew about yeah, this. Yeah, maybe stuff. she didn't know. He was just like, hey, get this money. And she's like, okay, buddy. I don't think <laughs> she knew about this the whole time, but he may have told her to go get this money, or he may have told her right before all this went down. Yeah. I don't think she knew the entire time. The funny thing is she had an office there, and she did book work for him. She had a small office next to his office. So it's like she was there. Yeah, but if he was keeping it a secret. But he was keeping it a secret. He might have been from his from entire her too. family. Yeah. I mean, they the were doing all the know. legit business while he was downstairs doing all the shady shit. That's awful. I feel bad for her. That's like her whole life just turned upside down because of that. Exactly. Like crazy. She loses her money, loses her husband. That's, it gets that, worse. That's awful. It gets worse. Y'all. Oh, great. <laughs> it's about to get worse. June 29, 2009, Madoff was sentenced to the maximum sentence of 150 years in federal prison. That's more than 13. It sure as fuck <laughs> is. Even with his advanced age of 71, he was still sentenced to 150 years, which okay. is a shit ton. Yeah. And he was sent to Federal Correction Institute Butner Medium in North Carolina. And I don't know why they chose that, but that's where he went. Mm. I mean, maybe that's where they had an opening. They were like, all right, shove this old fucker in this jail. Bernie eventually died in prison of natural causes on April 14th of 2021 at the age of 82. So he didn't live 13 more years? No. Yeah. <laughs> so they could have given him the 12 anyway, and he still would have died He would have still died. It wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> now... They said it was a natural causes, but nobody knows for sure what exactly. But TMZ, I guess, you know, good old TMZ. Aren't they kind of gossipy? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) They got a hold of, I guess, like, papers or whatever, supposed papers. And they were saying that it said he died of hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and chronic kidney disease. Okay, well, those are natural causes. Which are natural causes. A lot of people are speculating that, like, he basically was done for as soon as he went into jail because the stress of all he of just that. Kind of, yeah, I was going to say, like, he just kind of gave up. caused and stress, his body yeah. to kind of turn I on mean, him. I mean, going to jail at the age of 71, I can imagine, is a bit of a shock to the system. Yeah. Going from being hyper-rich and having multi-million dollar homes all over the world to a jail cell no doubt, is going to cause some stress to your body. Another interesting fact was that he was cremated, which is actually against, like, Jewish religion. Yes, it is. Because they say that you come from soil. 
and you must return yeah, to Yeah, you should be buried You're in be a buried. Jewish cemetery. But guess what? Not him. <laughs> he was cremated. And nobody wanted to deal with him or his ashes. <laughs> Therefore, they sit on a shelf at his lawyer's office. If anyone's interested. Yeah. <laughs> that is an interesting little tidbit. Because nobody wants anything to do with so him. So I wonder if he's just going to become like a family heirloom for that lawyer. He's like, you know what? Um, I'm getting old, so you can have Bernie now. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And now we're going to get into the real um, sad shit here. Oh, okay. Okay? I didn't know there was sad shit. There is, and it sucks. Mm. The sons, Andrew and Mark had both cut ties with him after his arrest and even went so far as to tell their mother they wanted nothing to do with her if she was going to keep in contact with him. And this is, like, while he was in jail. That's not before really fair. He died. I mean, I can understand not supporting him and not wanting anything to do with him, but demanding that somebody else cut contact with somebody that they've spent their life loving isn't right. fair. They didn't want her to see her grandkids. They didn't want anything if she was going to keep in contact with him. They didn't want to have contact with her if she was keeping in contact with him. Sadly, Mark took his own life in 2010 on the second anniversary of his dad's arrest. He could not handle the stress of people accusing him of being a part of it or harassing him because the media so like literally harassed these two. Oh, the media is awful towards pretty much everybody the media literally harassed these two guys i they they showed it in the documentary insisting that like they had to have known something that they were in on it all sorts of stuff like that you know just being bullied and harassed and just everything and he just couldn't handle it also Mm -hmm. he couldn't get a job yeah his life was basically done for after that Because you couldn't get a job in that industry then after that. Right. And people that were close to them, like they interviewed people that worked there, say that to them it was kind of like a big fuck you, basically, to the father by doing it on the anniversary of him being arrested. It could be. (laughs) I mean, look what you made me do. Yeah. And Andrew also died of mantle cell lymphoma, an aggressive form of cancer at the age of 48 in 2014. That sucks. He was quoted as saying the scheme was a father-son betrayal of biblical proportions. Sounds like it. They both were basically done with him after they found out about this. They wanted nothing, no part of him, no part of anything. I don't blame them. Yeah. The brother... Peter, or chief compliance officer, which we know is the people that are supposed to uh, make sure shit like this doesn't happen. (laughs) Right. He worked for him for more than 40 years and ran the daily operation for 20 years, agreed to pay $90 that he did not have to settle claims that he did not participate in the Ponzi scheme. So, like, he paid the $90 in order to settle with them because he was like... Screw it. But he didn't even have that. But he said he would pay it anyway because he knew he didn't participate in it and he didn't want to be seen as participating in it. Mm -hmm. But he was sentenced to 10 years in prison anyway. Oh, wow. Frank, who was in charge of that department, 
who referred to himself as the Director of Operations Trading and the Chief Financial Officer at Madoff Securities, pled guilty on August 11, 2009 to 10 counts. Conspiracy, securities fraud, investment, advisor fraud, mail fraud, wire fraud, perjury, income tax evasion, international money laundering, falsifying books and records of a broker-dealer and investment advisor. He agreed that he would name names, do whatever. Okay. You know. He's a snitch. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Of anyone else that was involved. So he probably would have got a lighter sentence, but he was faced with 125 years in prison. The problem is he didn't have to serve that because he passed away of lung cancer before he was even sentenced. Oh, okay. But he did run out those other co-conspirators. Yeah, all right. So Jody and Annette, who we know were doing some dirty work for him, mm-hmm. were arrested in November of 2010 and sentenced to six years. Okay. Jerome and George, the computer... The computer guys. Guys, were sentenced to two and a half years. All right. So nobody really got anything so nobody too really insane. nobody got anything too insane. Um... Except Ruth. She got the worst deal of all, I think. Honestly. That Frank guy would have went away for a long time, just like Bernie, if, yeah. if he hadn't he done had the died. names. And, and he's the one that gave the names, right? He gave the names, yeah. but also he died, so yeah. he was never really sentenced, but he was facing 125 years. So, it's like this, it's like it never ends, honestly, people. They went after people, obviously, who were big players in all of this in order to recover funds. Um, one of the biggest being that Jeffrey Pickhauer, who honestly was someone who benefited the most off of Bernie Madoff. Mm-hmm. But he also died, which is sad. And some people speculate that his was also suicide. But... The official death is that it was a heart attack, but he was found in his pool, which is, like, weird. Yeah, it was weird. It was a very weird, suspicious thing, I guess, or whatever. It was just very weird. He was found in his pool, dead, at the bottom of the pool, you know, but they say it was a heart attack. Who knows? I mean, it's possible that maybe they just didn't care enough to investigate because they figured good riddance. Yeah, I guess. Who knows? Anyway... His wife, though, was petitioned to return monies or whatever to... They had to reach a settlement with her for $77.2 billion. Holy shit. So she had to give them this from his estate. Oh, boy. That's a lot of money. After he was deceased. <laughs> so that's like a lot of money. $7.2 billion. On December 23rd, 2008, is when they found Renee... Villa show or whatever his name was, that guy from France, mm-hmm. dead in his company office. Oh. On Madison Avenue in New York City. He had slit both his wrists. Ooh. And they show this, well, I don't show it actually happening, but they have this in the documentary. Um, he had taken sleeping pills in what appeared to be an attempt at suicide, but then ended up slitting his wrist. Okay. It was weird because he literally like did it 
over the trash can as to not make a mess for the people that clean his office. Isn't that, like, bizarre? Yeah, that's weirdly considerate. But weirdly considerate, but, right? yeah. So wouldn't he just, like, stand there and just bleed out over the trash can until he could stand I don't know, no that's just what they then... said in the documentary. <laughs> oh. It was weird. Ooh. Yeah. His brother, shortly after, received a note expressing Renee's extreme remorse and feeling of responsibility for the loss of his investors' money. Because not only did he have his own money invested in Bernie, he had a company that he worked for that he had all of his, you know, clients' money invested in Bernie. And he felt shitty, obviously, after Mm -hmm. this happened. So... There was also another death. Charles Murphy, a hedge fund executive with Fairfield Greenwich Group that invested more than $7 billion with Bernie, leapt from a 24th floor of a hotel in Manhattan on March 27th, 2017. It's kind of crazy. How many more deaths do we have to go through? It keeps going. Please stop. (laughs) It keeps going. On February 10th, 2009, a British soldier, William Foxton, shot himself in England, having lost all of his family's savings. Okay. Which is crazy, which was also, I guess, he had it in one of those feeder funds at this bank called Bank Medici in Austria. Mm-hmm. That was one of the feeder funds that, uh, you know, yeah, Bernie got all his money from. Madoff's sister, Sandra Weiner, and her husband were also found dead in their Boynton Beach home on February 17, 2022, from an apparent murder-suicide. Wow. I know, it just never ends. And it says that Weiner's husband's name was not revealed because his family chose to not reveal it, but how would you not know when you know who's married to said person? I don't, I don't get that, but okay. And they never really provided details on it, like who shot who Mm -hmm. and such. But Sandra's son, David, said that Madoff had defrauded his mother and that it was very painful for her. I can imagine. And this was like his own sister. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty fucked up. Yeah. He also had invested a lot of money in philanthropy. I can't even say the word, y'all. Philanthropic Ventures, (laughs) which, like, all his money was froze, and it forced a lot of organizations to close, or at least temporarily, and some of them indefinitely, after his assets were froze. Mm -hmm. Following the exposure of the scandal, the SEC's Inspector General conducted an internal investigation into the agency's failure to uncover the scheme... Despite the series of red flags, which yeah, we I all mean, knew. That makes sense. And in September 2009, the SEC released a 477-page report on how the SEC missed these red flags and identified opportunities for the examiners to find the fraud and revealed how ineffective their efforts were. In response to the recommendations in the report, eight employees were disciplined. Not fired, disciplined. Wow. I know. Crazy. On January 7th of 2014, Forbes magazine and other news outlets reported that the bank that he had his 
703 account at J.P. Morgan Chase had to pay a settlement of $1.7 billion. Okay. For their... Involvement. Involvement to resolve any potential criminal case against the bank arising from the scandal. Mm -hmm. They entered into a deferred prosecution agreement with federal prosecutors to resolve two felony charges of violating the Bank Secrecy Act, which we know because we work for banks. Uh The bank admitted to failing to file a suspicious activity report (laughs) or a SARS. That's what we call it at the bank because obviously they should have seen the amounts of money going in and out of this account. And we don't want to go too deep into why they should have reported that. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that, but they should have talk about that. They should have seen this. Yeah. Coming. Yeah. We're not allowed to give anybody any information on what might really actually trigger that kind of report. Now, had they done their adequate due diligence, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Who knows? And they were said to have earned $483 million from his bank account. Jeez. That's a lot of money. Which is a lot of money, but they had to pay $1.7 billion to settle their lawsuit, so who cares? Yeah, that's, that's on them. That's right. <laughs> that's on them. They later made this fund to recover funds for victims of Bernie Madoff called the Madoff Recovery Initiative. But before that, let me tell you how they were recovering money from people. It's Mm -hmm. a real fucked up way that they talk about in the documentary. Mm -hmm. They were basically, there was this guy who was in charge of the assets seized. His name was Irving Picard. And what they did was they did this thing. Him and his team had to basically go out and recover 13 billion about they is what they recovered which was about 75 percent of approved claims by suing people who profited from the scheme even if those individuals were unaware or uncharged yeah that sucks so his victims yeah had to pay money back and how they decided who was paying money back because they show this in the documentary was People who profited the most had to pay money, and then people who really didn't, didn't have to. So it kind of, like, I guess it makes sense. And that's the money that they used to pay other victims back. And they interviewed this husband and wife couple from Florida that were like, they felt shitty and they felt victimized, but the husband even said, he's like, I would rather them take the money from me basically to give to the lesser people knowing that I profited more off of this than other people. You know what I mean? So like he felt good in that way about it. In 2002, they did the eighth distribution of funds from the Bernie Madoff victim fund which has been running since 2017 and they paid out approximately 372 million wait when did they pay that out the the last distribution of the 372 million was in 2022 okay okay i think you said 2002 at first or i misheard it and i was like i'm i may have (laughs) okay (laughs) it was 
just recently. The eighth distribution was in 2022 of $372 million in funds to the U.S. government, which put the total distributed to about $4 billion to more than 40,000 victims as compensation for losses they suffered. Okay. So that was the eighth distribution. So, like, the total, they're saying, is $4 billion total. Okay. But they started doing this recovery fund in 2017, so this was... They've been doing this for a while. Like it yeah. says, this was the eighth distribution. So they've been doing this for a while. I'm going to end this. I know it's been going on for half our lives now. <laughs> <laughs> With a little tidbit. I thought it was very poignant. From our good old Kevin Bacon. Who oh got swindled from... Uh, Alright, let's get Bacon got to I just thought it was funny because it fits with our uh, theme here. Okay. Kevin Bacon, who we know as an actor, who lost most of his money to the scheme, was on a podcast, you know, as one does. Yeah, you know, Kevin, if you feel like coming on (laughs) ours, come on. (laughs) And told this podcast, which was called Smart List, he told the host, which which the host of the podcast. Oh, I know, Smart List. The the podcast is also run by actors. Yes, It's it's run by Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman, Sean Hayes, and Will Arnett. Oh, yeah, Will Arnett, not Dak Shepard. He was, like, one of their first guests. And he told them in 2002... Or, why do I keep saying 2002? Yeah, get the year right, bitch. Come on. <laughs> In October of 2022, there's obvious life, life lessons there. If something is too good to be true, it's it too is. good to be true. That's exactly what he said. Well, thank you, Kevin Bacon. Very poignant. And we'll talk to everybody next week. And, uh, guys, if you want to go to our socials, we're on Facebook, Too Good To Be True Podcast. We're on Instagram and TikTok, Too Good To Be True Pod. If you want to email us and give us any suggestions, stories, or, you know, bitch about anything, it's Too Good To Be True Pod at Outlook.com. And, um, that's it, I think. And thank you for listening. And I'm sorry this was a long one. If you stuck it out, I, I mean, appreciate you. We missed you. a week, so we made up for it. <laughs> if you stuck it out, I appreciate you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>